My name is Eric Metaxas, and I apologize in advance for everything that, uh, that I'm going to say about Rich Teeters. Um, no, I, I, uh, I haven't been here in a while. By the way, I love Rich. If I, if I make fun of you publicly, that's a sign of affection. You already knew that. Um, I, uh, I do. I, I, I love Rich, and I'm honored to, to be asked to, to be here this morning again. I haven't been here in quite a while, actually, and I, and I was trying to figure out how long, and I realized it's been three books it's been, literally, I, I wrote a book called Everything You Always Want to Know About God, but we're afraid to ask the Jesus edition, which came out. And then, I, and then I wrote this Bonhoeffer book, which I want to talk about this morning. Actually, I don't want to talk about the book. I actually want to talk about Bonhoeffer and perhaps even Jesus. Is, can I say Jesus in this church? This is not like a UN chapel, right? I can say the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. I can say that here. I'm so glad. I feel so comfortable now. Um, but I will. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Oh, what was the third book? I had a children's book. I did not bring copies of the children's book. I'm so sorry, but uh, I can only carry so much. But I did. It's kind of a weird thing. I said, it's literally been three books since I've been here. And I said, I wonder if the church will have changed at all. And I realized that, yes, the church has actually gotten 22% hipper. You're even, I didn't think you could. It's like the four-minute thing. I don't think they can break the four-minute mile, but you've done it. You're at like 349 now. It's pretty extraordinary. Uh, to be introduced with somebody like reading from an iPad, unbelievable. That's, the, that's never happened to me before. That's like rad, very rad. And the music is even slightly hipper. Steve, I didn't think you could do that. You're like, you're like real close to strobe lights. Uh, don't. Don't go that far. That's unpleasant and unnecessary. Don't go that far. You're hip enough. You could even bring it back a notch. I wouldn't shoot you, okay? But uh, I was hoping for a little super tramp this morning. No super tramp? I was hoping for super tramp. But, uh, but yeah, you're slightly, you're slightly hipper. But, again, it's been like almost two years or something, so it's understandable. You guys are very hip. Um, I want to uh, talk this morning about the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, I'm, I'm curious, how many of you are sort of familiar with the story of Bonhoeffer. I'm just curious to get any, okay, you, you guys can leave. Uh, I'm going to, because I'm just going to give you like a thumbnail, and you can go have your cigarette and come back, uh, and we'll talk. No, I, um, let's see, the story of Bonhoeffer, I do want to talk about that this morning. Um, I'm not going to tell you the full story. Obviously, if you want to get the full story, you can read the book, or you can go to my website where I have a whole video of a talk that I gave at Socrates and City. Some of you were there, I know, uh, and I gave sort of the full talk because there is so much to the story of Bonhoeffer that it's really a challenge to figure out what to, what to talk about. There is just so much. It's, he's so intense and amazing. He's one of those people who lived five lives in one. Um, I, uh, to give you the basics, uh, in case you don't know anything about Bonhoeffer, the sort of, you know, the three-sentence version is that he was a German pastor and a theologian uh, who in the 1930s got involved in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Uh, he was an extraordinary uh, German pastor, and he was part of one of the. He was one of the leaders of what was called the Confessing Church, which were those Christians who understood that we've got to stand up to the Nazis. And you don't hear much about this, but um, he was one of those. Uh, one of the leaders of the Confessing Church stood up to the Nazis publicly. Uh, vocally, incredible courage, ex- ex- extraordinary courage, really. Um, and he um, came to the United States a couple times. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And then he went back uh, in 1939 to sort of face the music, to stand with his people. And uh, he eventually got involved in the conspiracy against Hitler and um, was imprisoned. Uh, he got engaged, amazing story, but he was imprisoned. 
and eventually hanged by the Nazis in 1945, right before the end of the war, April 9th, 1945, just celebrated the 65th anniversary. Um, that's his, his basic story. He's famous for a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Some people have read that. Most people have read it say, oh, it changed my life. It's unbelievable. It's, it's one of the most amazing books, certainly, of Christian devotional literature that you'll ever read. If you're looking to go deeper with God, there's your book. It's, don't, don't read it without a pencil. It's like you're going to be underlining a lot. It's spectacular and intense. That's the nutshell version of him. Uh, I remember when I heard that story uh, for the first time it was 1988, and I'd been out of Yale for like four years, and this guy who was sharing the faith with me, leading me to Christ, gives me a copy of The Cost of Discipleship and says, uh, oh, yeah, gives me the nutshell version of the story of Bonhoeffer. And I thought, how is it that I've never heard this story before? That's just insane. Now, you know, if you want to hear stories of Christian heroism, probably Yale University is not the place. <laughs> not so big on that. Nihilism, uh, you know, life's a bummer, but hang in there. Uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, you can get a lot of a lot of good teaching, a lot of good teaching. But uh, the story of Bonhoeffer was not not going to come up as a Yale undergraduate, so I'd never heard it, and I was amazed and sort of offended almost. Like, what, how do I not know this story? This is amazing. A Christian in Germany who stood up for the Jews because of his faith in Jesus. I've never heard this, and he and he was hanged in a concentration camp. I was amazed, but it also has a personal side for me. Part of the reason I was so stunned was because um, I am. Uh, well, half German. My mom is from Germany. I, I always say my, my dad is Greek, hence my surname Metaxas. My mom is German, hence my deep love for Siegfried and Roy. That's, uh, hey, you've been a great audience. Good night. Uh, that's like, uh, but, but it's true. My, mom, my, my parents met in an English class uh, in the 1950s in Manhattan, which is where I woke up a few hours ago. Um, and I'm still waking up. But, um, yeah, the story of uh, you know Nazi Germany. My mother lived through that as a little girl, and the horror is that she lost her dad when she was nine years old. My my grandfather was uh, like so many uh, you know young men at age thirty sent to the war reluctantly. He didn't want to go, um, really didn't want to go, and um, he was uh, killed at age thirty one. And my mother was nine years old, and so that story has been with me. I, my mom said that he used to listen to the BBC with his ear pressed, literally pressed against the radio speaker, because if you were caught doing that, you could go to a concentration camp uh, that was not permitted. So he was really not um, not on board with the, with the Nazi agenda, but he had to go, and he was killed. So this is a very personal story for me. I've grown up with this. And when I heard the story of Bonhoeffer, I said, you know, this, um, this has even more meaning for me because I'm German and because my mom and grandmother, they lived through this horrible, horrible period. My whole family lived through this period, and I've still got plenty of relatives over there um, whom I visited. Um, really personal. So it captivated me. I never dreamt that I would write a book about it, much less a long book. But, but it's on the iPad, so what does it weigh? Like a, a micron or something? Unbelievable. I just cannot believe I was introduced from an iPad. I, now I've arrived. I feel like now I'm hip because yeah, unbelievable. But just remember, this is coming. This is coming. You'll, you'll be able to afford it. Just save, start saving up now. This is, uh, these are good. Um, well, uh, okay, so I want to give you re- briefly the story of Bonhoeffer, and then I want to talk about how it applies to us. Briefly, Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 into one of the most amazing families in Germany, 
I have to tell you, I didn't recognize, I mean, I didn't realize this. When I went to do the research on this, on the book, and by the way, people kept saying, I wrote the book on uh, Wilberforce called Amazing Grace. A lot of you guys have heard me talk about that. I never thought I'd write any biographies, but people uh, kept saying after I wrote Amazing Grace, you know, the Wilberforce book is great. Who are you going to write about next? Who are you going to write about next? And I thought, you know, I don't want to write another biography. I was really tired from writing that one, and I'd like to do something easier now. But people kept asking, and eventually I decided there's only one person who captivates me uh, the way Wilberforce did, and that's Bonhoeffer. And um, I have to say, I still didn't know very much about Bonhoeffer. For example, his family, which I just mentioned, is outrageous. His father was the most famous psychiatrist in Germany in the first half of the 20th century. He was a monster, intellect, academic, one of the most respected scientists and doctors in Europe. Uh, That's Karl Bonhoeffer, the father of Dietrich. So he didn't grow up in a vacuum and sort of become this amazing, courageous figure and genius named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but he grew up in a context. And his family, I begin with the father because the father sort of set the tone for the children about thinking clearly. As a scientist... He prized rigorous logic. Think clearly. Don't think sloppily. Uh, Very, very important in the Bonhoeffer family. And then express yourself clearly. Don't just talk. Think about, do you have something to say? Do you have a point? What is your point? What are you saying? Do you realize what you're saying? Imagine growing up, you know, with Karl Bonhoeffer, one of these geniuses, and then have the whole family. Dietrich was one of the, the youngest kids in the family. He was the youngest of four sons, and there were four girls as well. So you can imagine this dining room table growing up in this, in this uh, situation where if you said the wrong thing, it's like, you'd be like slammed, which, you know, could be harsh, but it could also be good. It could train you to, to think clearly, and it trained him to think clearly. Um, so, so it was a family where pretty much all of the siblings, literally all of the siblings, were amazing intellects. His brother split the atom at age 23, and I've seen the atom. It's uh, in a museum. It's, uh, hu- it's huge. They were bigger back then. Did I mention that? Yeah. The atoms, it was easier to split, split with an axe, but still. Uh, no, but I mean, imagine his brother goes into physics, and he splits the atom with Einstein and Max Planck, and you know, he, he was, it was this level of academic excellence in the family. Everybody was a genius. Uh, the mother was a genius. They were all just amazing. The father was not so much a Christian. He was sort of agnostic. The mother was quite a serious Christian. I go into that in the book. But Bonhoeffer really took after his mother's side of the family. His grandfather and great-grandfather were uh, really eminent theologians. So at age 12 or 13, Dietrich, growing up in this uh, you know, greenhouse of geniuses, decides he wants to go into theology. Now, you have to understand, for the Bonhoeffer family, theology, you know, in a way, it was looked down on. They thought, well, theology, you know, I mean, we could understand physics or law or something like that, but, but theology, and we understand that the grandfather and the grand... But, you know, um, hmm, you sure, Dietrich, you want to go into theology? Uh, it's, it seems like such a waste of your great mind because he was a super genius. And, um, but he was really, really, uh, you know, clear on what he wanted to do. He knew that he wanted to go into theology. And we have to say that... Theology, it was a little bit like a branch of philosophy, okay? He didn't mean he wanted to be a pastor and minister and preach. He wanted to go into theology. And Berlin University, from an academic point of view, when we say theology, from an academic point of view, theology was, um, uh, well, nowhere in the world outside Berlin was theology as prized. I mean, Berlin was the place, if you were going to study theology in the world, 
Berlin University was the place to do it. It was absolutely known. The greatest theologians on planet Earth were at Berlin University. Bonhoeffer had grown up in the neighborhood with these academics. Grunewald in Berlin was this extraordinary neighborhood of, of, of academics, and he knew some of these huge names that were sort of living legends around in the world of theology. So he decides he's going to go into theology. Well, you know, being a genius, he gets his doctorate at age 21. Anybody here uh, managed to do that? Surely somebody got a doctorate at age 21. No? Yeah, me either. Um, it's pretty tough. But with these iPads coming out now, pretty much, we're, we're all going to – I know, it's coming. We're all going to get doctorates by age 21. But um, it's so uh, – he was that kind of a brain, right? But what happened is, as he distinguished himself as a theologian – I mean, not only did he get a doctorate at age 21, but he was recognized by this – amazing Berlin theological faculty as being somebody. He was going to be somebody. They were sort of fighting to get him under their wing. You know, some of these 70-year-old theological legends were fighting to get this, you know, 19-year-old, you know, to study under them because they knew he was going to distinguish himself as a theologian, as he certainly did. But what Bonhoeffer uh, realizes as he's, you know, blitzing along in the world of theology is he also does enjoy pastoral work, church work, as he called it. He enjoys uh, Sunday school. He enjoys teaching children about God. He enjoys teaching adults. He enjoys preaching. He enjoys taking these highfalutin academic theological ideas and translating them into a language that he can actually communicate to people in the pews. He really enjoyed that. He enjoyed counseling people. He enjoyed that side of it. So he was sort of torn. He wanted to do both. He wanted to do uh, academic theological work and get his you know, postdoctorate and to teach, but he also enjoyed preaching and church work. So he never knew what to do. He couldn't get ordained until he was 25. That was the rule. And you also had to be born in the United States, too. Did you know that? Just kidding. That's kidding. Um, no, you, you had to, uh, but you did have to be 25 years old in order to get your, uh, uh, to be ordained. And so he decides to go and to kill a year in New York City. He decides to travel across the Atlantic in 1930 to study as a Sloan Fellow at Union Theological Seminary. Um, not because he was impressed with their theology, because I think he thought it would be sort of a culturally expanding experience. And the, the Bonhoeffers were just the kind of family. They traveled everywhere. They knew every painting and every museum and every opera. And they were just amazing people. So he goes to New York. And what he finds at Union Theological Seminary was pretty depressing, actually. He's gracious about it, but he looks down his nose at what passes for theology. I mean, he'd been in Berlin and got the doctorate at age 21, so now he's 24. He could easily be teaching at Union. And not only that, but they had very liberal theology. They also had liberal theology at that time in Berlin. He didn't agree with the liberal theology, but he respected how they got there. He respected, their, um, he respected them as theologians and as academics and intellectually. But when he gets to New York, he, he doesn't agree with the liberal theology, but he also doesn't respect them as theologians. He just finds that this is all a little bit beneath him. So an African-American student named Frank Fisher from Alabama, invites Bonhoeffer to visit Abyssinian Baptist Church, an African-American church uh, in Harlem, one Sunday uh, early in the fall of 1930. So Bonhoeffer goes up there, and what happened there uh, really shaped his year in New York. His year in New York was not shaped at all, really, by Union Theological Seminary, to be fair, Um, because he'd gotten as much you know, good theological teaching as he needed in Berlin. But here he's in New York, and he's asked to go visit this church in Harlem. And he goes there, and what he saw in that church, in an African-American church in Harlem in 1930, completely changed his life. He saw a congregation, first of all, a huge congregation, huge, 
uh, worshiping Jesus in a way that he had never seen in any of these sort of religious Lutheran circles in which he'd been raised, okay? They didn't just sort of do church up in Harlem. He saw, first of all, a suffering congregation of people who, um, who had suffered and for whom faith in Jesus Christ was something totally real. They were not here to kill time. They were here uh, because this was real to them. So he sees them worshiping. The music blew his mind. He'd never seen, no super tramp, um, because most of those guys had not been born yet. But, but nonetheless, very captivating, um, you know, uh, African-American worship. They were worshiping Jesus Christ. They weren't simply singing songs. Um, the preaching was, again, mind-blowing. He'd never heard preaching like this. Adam Clayton Powell Sr., uh, who was the preacher then, was just on fire, preaching the gospel of Jesus with power. There was um, you know, social outreach in the name of Jesus Christ. There was good preaching and good theology and good evangelism in the name of Jesus, incredible worship. It completely blew Bonhoeffer's mind. Imagine this uh, you know, blonde, bespectacled academic from Berlin walking into the situation, probably one of you know, maybe two white people, probably the only white person in this place. But it blew his mind. He'd never seen anything like it. He was so moved by the worship in this African-American church that he decided to go back every single Sunday that he was in New York. He not only went back to worship, he taught Sunday school in that church every single Sunday. It became a huge part of his uh, identity and really changed him. Um, When he goes back to Germany uh, in 1931, people notice that something's different about you. What has has happened to you? Um, Bonhoeffer's faith, it seems to me, had become personalized. Uh, He had, before this, wanted in an ambitious way, sort of in a, in, a, in a fleshly, ambitious way to distinguish himself as a theologian, you know, to really impress people with how smart he was in his theology. And he was just so impressive. But, but suddenly now the whole thing became personal to him. What he experienced in Harlem um, week after week had seeped into his heart. And people noticed this about him, what's, what's different. Um, he was now teaching at Berlin University in the theology department, okay? Um, but his students uh, were really attracted to what he was saying because it was very, very different from what the other theologians uh, were, were talking about. For example, Bonhoeffer would say things to his students which were incredibly radical for the world of theology in Berlin. Uh, he, would, he would ask his students things along the lines of, do you love Jesus? Now, that's not the kind of thing you'd hear from most pulpits in Lutheran Germany in 1931-32, much less from behind a university lectern uh, in the theology department of Berlin. Do you love Jesus? Uh, He would talk about the Bible not just as a text, but as the living word of God through which God actually wants to speak to us, to you, to speak to you, that when you read it, it's God's love letter to you. Are you hearing God's voice through his word? This was really radical. But Bonhoeffer was so spectacular and so impressive and such a big deal that he could sort of get away with this kind of radical stuff. Um, But he really was obviously changed. He obviously had met Jesus in a completely different way through the African-American congregation. It was very obvious to everybody. Now, at the same time, you realize that uh, when he left Germany in 1930, the Nazis were the ninth most popular political party in the Reichstag, right? This is sort of this uh, hash 
of a, of a democracy, the Weimar Republic. Um, they had all these different parties squabbling, and the Nazis were ninth, those crazy Nazis. But by the time Bonhoeffer comes back in 1931, the Nazis are second in power. They have many, many, many seats in the Reichstag, the German parliament. And the temperature, the climate in Germany has changed. Um, Bonhoeffer senses this. Uh, it's obvious, I guess. And he even starts speaking in his classes, imagine this, about uh, you know, the false idea of looking to a person, a political uh, savior, because clearly Germany was just ripe for this kind of thing. They had suffered so much. If you don't know the history, I go into this in chapter and verse in the book because it's ama- the history is amazing because you think, how did this happen? Well, there's, there's answers to how it didn't just happen. It's not a one-off. It can happen again, unfortunately. I'm sorry to say it can happen again. But to read how it happened is completely fascinating to see that they were just so broken uh, because of World War I and there was so much suffering in the Depression that they were just looking for anybody to pull them out of this. And it was clear that they were looking for a leader. The German word for leader is Führer. They were looking for a Führer, someone to lead us out of this mess. Bonhoeffer saw this and it troubled him. He knew that this was not good. And this is before Hitler becomes chancellor. But he begins to speak out and begins to say things along the lines of there is only one savior, and that is Jesus Christ. And that was sort of, he said it in kind of a pointed way. He was not trying to be so elliptical. He was trying to be clear that we, we have only one savior, and that's Jesus. Don't look to someone else. But obviously, uh, his was a lonely voice in Germany um, at that time. But Bonhoeffer could see what was coming, whether he saw it prophetically, whether he was just smart, or whether God was speaking to him, or whether it's a combination of both, which I think it was. He could see what was coming. He could feel it. Um, in 1932, before Hitler uh, ascends to power, Bonhoeffer preached a sermon. Uh, he, he was asked to preach at this extraordinary church, this amazing church called the um, Kaiser Wilhelm Gedankniskirche, which means, uh, I don't know what it means. What does it mean, Rich? Can you look it up on your iPad there real quick? <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm uh, no, what it means is the Kaiser Wilhelm Kaiser was, you know, the, the, uh, the Kaiser of Germany, Wilhelm uh, Memorial Church. Okay, so this was like the church in the middle of Berlin. You've all seen churches like that, right? It's sort of the church, and everybody goes there who's anybody, okay? In fact, uh, you know, Hindenburg may have been there that morning when, when uh, Bonhoeffer, was, who was the president of Germany at the time, he, he might have been worshiping there because this was the church. It is a building. It was a building that, you know, would take your breath away. It was one of the glories of Berlin. It was one of the things that if you were uh, a German at the time and you walked past it, you'd say, you know, that's why I'm proud to be a German. Look at that building. That represents who we are. That's the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church. That's, you know, the identity of Germany. What a glorious identity we have. And what a glorious identity they did have. What a glorious identity they did have. They had a lot to be proud about. That's one thing I learned writing this book. Extraordinary civilization, extraordinary culture. This is the culture that gave us Schiller and Goethe and Bach and so many others who were just giants. So it was an extraordinary civilization. But Bonhoeffer uh, was preaching this Sunday in this church, and he was uh, he came with a kind of an unpleasant message. Now, Bonhoeffer, by the way, was, was not just preaching in an amazing church uh, on Sunday morning, but what Sunday was it? It was October, the end of October, 
1932. It was Reformation Sunday. Now, Reformation Sunday, I think you could say the equivalent would be like July 4th here in America. Reformation Sunday is the day that in this church they're going to worship, they're going to celebrate the Reformation. What's the Reformation? It's the day that Luther, the German, effectively invents Christianity, right? Protestant Christianity, Luther, he's a German, we're Germans, we're going to celebrate the Reformation, this is the Sunday. Can you imagine the German pride that they felt? Because, you know, and you realize pride can be legitimate and it can be illegitimate, right? But they were really proud. They thought, you know, we, hey, yeah, we invented Protestantism. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pretty, pretty cool. We're pretty cool. We're Germans. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's just, you know, Luther's just a German. Now, Luther was not just, you know, the leader of, of the Reformation. I mean, Luther on some level can be, have, can be said to have invented Germany. What I mean by this is that when he translated the Bible for the first time into German, he in a way codified the German language. He, he effectively for the first time said... Uh, you know, this is the German language because there have been all these dialects. And I, I write about this in the book. I was fascinated learning this to realize that Germany sort of came into being culturally as a nation because everybody in all these disparate burgs are reading the same book, this Bible. And so Protestantism, Lutheranism, being a German are all sort of wrapped up. And so you can see how they are completely ripe to almost worship themselves. They're so full of pride on this Reformation Sunday Morning, and Bonhoeffer comes in again, this bespectacled academic, this young man he 's now going to preach and um, It seems to me that it would be very much a similar scene as if you went to um, you know sort of a white congregational church on the village green in New England or, or some place, Wheaton, Illinois, whatever it is, some really special place, this beautiful church with uh, red, white, and blue bunting and it's july it just happens that today sunday is it is july 4th and you know we're gonna have a big uh hot dogs and whatever after the service and we're we're here to celebrate july 4th this morning in our church bonhoeffer had had that sense to him right this nationalistic pride which again sometimes is uh a good thing but uh, bonhoeffer felt it was not such a good thing bonhoeffer was worried uh the text he took uh, to preach from was from revelation and by the way if you think the bible was written by people and, and not inspired by God, read Revelation, because I don't know any humans that could write like that. It's pretty freaky, pretty amazing. But what's the text he takes? The thing about where, where Jesus is speaking to one of the churches and saying, this I have against you. You have lost your first love. You've lost your first love. So Bonhoeffer decides to preach from this text to a congregation which is sort of sitting there ready to celebrate themselves and being how cool it is to be German and Lutherans. And, and, and this, you know, over-serious brilliant academic is coming in there with a, with a kind of a harsh message because he's asking them what he asked his students. You know, there's all this religion, there's this beautiful church, but do you love Jesus or do you love yourselves? Are you really in love with yourself? Are you really proud of who you are and what you're doing here and how great Germany is? Or are you aware that all this will pass away? And that the only thing that is eternal is God. Are you resting in him? Are you resting in Jesus? Because I'm here to warn you, if you're not, you're going to be in trouble. Do you see what's coming? Now, Bonhoeffer, I think, intuitively understood that the Nazis were coming and that they meant trouble for Germany. But you can take this as a metaphor for anything because we know from the scripture that nothing stands except God. Nothing is eternal. So if you put your trust in him, you will stand and evil cannot defeat you. And the difficulties of this life 
cannot defeat you because you can do all things through Jesus Christ. But if you try to deal with this world with anything else, you will fail by definition. It's like math. It's not difficult. Christ is the solid rock. You can stand on him. Anything else is sinking sand. You know the hymn. So Bonhoeffer is speaking to these people, and you, know, you can imagine that they're getting uncomfortable because they, did they, they didn't come to this big fancy church to hear this kind of stuff, right? You know, you get that stuff, you know, yeah, in those weird, like in a basement church with folding chairs and stuff, but not in this church, not in this fancy, you know, glorious, amazing historical church with Hindenburg in the front row, all dressed up with his medals. Um, we, don't, we don't come here to hear that kind of hardcore, crazy Jesus stuff here. We just want to have some hymns and have a nice time. Well, Bonhoeffer was there. Uh, he just basically um, was going to preach what God had told him to preach. And so he's really saying to folks, this is all going to pass away. What is your hope in? Is your hope in this architecture? Is your hope in this, this amazing church? Or, or whatever it is, whatever your issue is. You know, Maybe we, we all have these issues, and that's why you can't escape. You can't say, well, I'm not religious. I don't go to that kind of a church. I go to this kind of a church. I go to go. Well, you, know, they're, they're, you can make a, a religion out of anti-religion, right? You, know, you can make a religion of, out of we're so hip in our church, so we have this kind of music and this kind of stuff. Like, so we're not like those other churches. And those other churches are thinking, yeah, and we're not like your church. You know, we, we all do this to each other, right? You, you have pride, and you're so wonderful. That's called human nature. And human nature, according to... Some passages in Genesis is fallen. And so we're fallen. And our temptation is always to worship ourselves, not to worship Christ. Bonhoeffer is putting his finger on this with this incredible congregation. You can just imagine how they would have been dressed that morning, that they were just full of pride. Bonhoeffer did not know in 1932 when he's preaching this sermon that in a few years... The Nazis are going to rise. Now, I think he sort of knew it intuitively, but it's like Jesus when Jesus is in the temple and Jesus says, in three days, you know, th- th- this temple, will not, not one stone will be left on the other. Like, this is all coming down. But in three days, uh, you know, I will be resurrected. I mean, d- Jesus was saying all this. You see this amazing temple speaking to the Jews 2,000 years ago. Do you see all this that you think you're so great? and You got this. This is all going down. But God is eternal. Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping your religion? To the Germans, are you worshiping Jesus or are you worshiping Lutheranism and Germanism? Now, what Bonhoeffer also didn't know and what nobody in that church knew is that that church in 13 years, or 12 years, I'm sorry, would be bombed into rubble by the Allied bombers that this beautiful church that they're sitting in, which is one of the glories of Berlin, would be bombed and reduced to smithereens and rubble. My wife and I went there two years ago, and we visited this church, and it is left as a memorial, sort of like a heavy-handed, modernistic, uber-German reminder of like how bad war is. They've got this hideous church. The church, it's like a stump. It's like uh, that poem, Ozymandias. It's, it's just this stump sitting there in the midst of this bleak part of Berlin. And you look at it. And when I realized this is the church that Bonhoeffer was preaching, and I thought, this is unbelievable. He was saying, prophetically, something is coming. And all this that you're worshiping, it will pass away. Are you aware evil is coming to Germany? Are you standing on something that can withstand that evil? Only the blood of Jesus can stand against evil. Those fig leaves that Adam and Eve try to use to fool God, this religion, this dead religion, 
this, this is not going to stand. You're playing church. If you're playing church, you're, the evil will come over you like a tsunami. You can't fool God. You can't get all dressed up and come here and think how great we are and think that you're justified before God. Bonhoeffer is trying to wake them up and saying that all of this will be overwhelmed by the evil that is coming. Are you prepared? Is your faith in Jesus or is your faith in this? So I want to say this morning, obviously all of us have places in our lives where we're not standing on the rock Christ Jesus, where we're fooling ourselves and we're fooling God. We're using a fig leaf to cover things up thinking that that's good enough, that's good enough. But God says it's not good enough. Uh, blood has to be shed. The blood of my son Jesus has to be shed to reconcile you to me. Are you, are you standing in that? That's the only thing that can protect you from the evil that is coming. Now, we don't know what is coming historically in America, but just look at our own lives. There are things coming in each of our lives. Everyone here will die, even if you own an iPad, even you. We're going to die. I know I'm going to die. My hair is grayer since I was here last time, right? So there are things that are coming, and we know that. But if you're standing in Jesus, you can face it with a smile, with joy, because you know that that can withstand the evil that is to come. Only Bonhoeffer and a few others had the kind of real faith in Jesus to stand against the Nazis. Do you know that the church rolled over and played dead when the Nazis came? If you're just playing church... Like most of the people attending the church that morning, when really ugly, nasty evil comes, when real trouble comes in your life, in your marriage, with your children, we all know that that's what life is about, and life will bring you nasty stuff. But if you're standing in Jesus, it will be not only okay, but it will be glorious. God will make something beautiful out of our difficulties. That's the reality of God. Now, if you know that, You'll be okay. If you don't know that, I'm here to tell it to you this morning. Jesus is the way. Bonhoeffer didn't know that that church would be reduced to rubble. But if you ever go to Berlin, you can go look at it, and it'll blow your mind. But what he was saying that morning, as I say, uh, as I said, God is saying to us this morning, to you and to me, what is it in our lives? Where are we worshiping ourselves and how wonderful I am and how everything's fine? And you're not putting... Your, 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 your difficulties, your brokenness in the hands of Christ Jesus, who is the only one who can stand against it. That's God's message to us today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give this to you this morning. We ask you, Lord God, by your spirit to reveal to us what we are blind to in our own lives. Where are we avoiding you? Where are we afraid of you? We don't trust you. Loving Jesus, Help us to see where we are not giving you everything. Because, Lord, what we don't give you is not protected. We are only protected from evil and the difficulty of this world in you. Help us this morning, today, this week, and in our lives to give you everything we have so that it can stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. God bless you.